I want to ask, have you guys ever wanted to be part of a group that you, for whatever reason, were not allowed to be a part of? Say, for example, like, I love playing baseball. I grew up playing baseball for a lot of my life. I got to, to high school my freshman year, tried out for the baseball team, and I didn't make the cut. It's like, dang, I wish I could have been a part of that group, but I didn't make it. Or uh, maybe some of you guys, you're here at UC, this wasn't your first choice. Uh, maybe you, you wish that you could have gotten into a different university or something, but you didn't, and so you ended up here. Or maybe you want to be in a certain degree program that you haven't made the cup for. Um, maybe you just wanted to be a part of a certain friend group that you were not allowed to be a part of, whatever, they, they rejected you. Or maybe you wanted a certain job uh, that you wish you could have had, but for whatever reason, they didn't hire you. I think that for most of us, uh, we're familiar with this idea of wanting access to a certain place, but sometimes not always being granted that access that we desire. And what can be even more difficult, though, is if you already have access to a certain place and then you end up losing it for whatever reason. They kind of kick you out and say, we don't want you here anymore. So maybe that's, uh, you, you had a job that you really liked, but they fired you. It's like, hey, See you later. We don't want you back here anymore. Or maybe you were in a relationship that you really liked and you didn't want to end, but the other person said, I'm done with this and we're not going to be dating anymore. Uh, whatever, that, that kind of pain is, I think, even a little bit more because you have experienced uh, the, the goodness that's a part of, of being in that group or in that crowd or whatever that you wanted, and now all of a sudden you're no longer allowed to be a part of it. Well, as we continue through our series in Revelation this morning, if you've been with us, you know that we're preaching through the book of Revelation, and when most people think of Revelation, they think of lots of crazy images and end time stuff and all that, and that is true. There's, there's quite a bit of that, but we've been moving real slowly through the beginning of it, and the beginning of it is actually really, really practical and relatively easy to understand because it's seven letters that are written to seven different churches, seven real churches that existed in a place called Asia Minor, which is what we now call Turkey. And so we've just been spending a week on each one of those letters. This week, we're going to be looking at the letter of the church in Philadelphia. Now, uh, when I say Philadelphia, I'm not talking about the home of the Eagles and Philly cheesesteaks and that kind of stuff. Great, it's a great city. It's worth visiting. Uh, but that's not the one we're talking about. We're talking about Philadelphia that's over on the other side of the world in Turkey. And uh, this, is, this is the sixth out of the seven churches that we'll have been reading letters to. And... Uh, most of these letters, they follow a pretty similar format. You get uh, this introduction of Jesus saying who he is. He points out something about himself. He tells the congregation something that they're doing well. He tells them something that they're doing poorly, saying, hey, you need to change this or else there's going to be consequences. And then he uh, encourages them to persevere by, by pointing their uh, eyes towards some reward that's going to be uh, given to them in the future. So this morning, we're going to look in on the letter that he wrote to this church in Philadelphia. Uh, we're going to read their mail. It's okay. We've been given permission to do so. We're actually, uh, we're, we're blessed if we read their mail out loud is actually what the beginning of Revelation talks about. So we're going to do that. And uh, even though this was a letter that was written to a real church in a real place about 2,000 years ago, we believe that there's still quite a bit that God wants to speak through it to us today. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. God, we love you. You are awesome. You are so worthy of all the praise we sing. I love uh, that we just got to, to worship you together with our voices. Just remembering the, the way that, that death was arrested and that we're free because of that. We're free because of the work that you did. 
And God, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in uh, the, the new life that you've given us, God, and we rejoice in the way that you lead us and how we should walk. I think of Psalm 1 that we just prayed through and in, in that uh, when we stay close to you, God, we're like a, stream, a tree that's planted by streams of water that bears fruit. And, and God, we ask that... Uh, you would just make us like that tree that's by the stream, Lord, that we would be people that are uh, so close to you, that are constantly being nourished by your word. And so, God, as we enter into this time of the service that we do every week where uh, we're going to just focus in on your word, we ask that you would give us just great clarity. God, give us the focus that we need to be able to, to pay attention to your word, to hear it, to receive it. God, I pray that you would give us the heart to respond to it. And so, Lord, for all of us here this morning, we just ask that you would speak to us in a powerful way, that your name would be glorified, that you would remove every distraction from us, and that we would be able to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so for my sermon this morning... Really, there's, there's just four major things I want to, to point out from this. Which first off, is like the sender of the letter. We're going to talk about the destination of the letter. Then we're going to talk about the destination of the recipients. And then we're going to talk about the sender of the recipients. All right, you'll see how we're going to move through that as we go here. Um, but first, the sender of the letter. I talked about these, these seven different letters. Every time, it's always sent by Jesus, but he draws attention to these different aspects of himself in each letter. And so for this one, the things that he points out about himself, we see here in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So Jesus is highlighting a few things about himself here. First off, he talks about how he's holy and true. So holy is this idea of being set apart. He's different from anything else. He's, he's, he's special above anything else. And then he's also true. Whatever he says, we know that we can trust. And that's great, especially when he talks about reward, right? Because who wants to get a, a reward promised to them by somebody that lies all the time? That's not valuable. But Jesus is holy and true. And so we know that when he promises a reward, that it's actually going to take place. But I really want to hone in on the, the next thing he talks about, which is this idea of holding the keys of David 
and that what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He's drawing attention to his authority as a gatekeeper here. He really wants this church in Philadelphia to understand that he's ultimately the one that has power over access. And I think that's going to be significant because of what was likely going on in the church in Philadelphia. But this reminds me of, of something he said about himself in the Gospels in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gatekeeper of the kingdom of God. He says, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, there's one way to do it, and it's through me. No one comes to the Father in any other way. And so that's going to be a significant thing for us to understand. Why did he highlight this attribute about having control over access? Well, I think that's likely because of what was going on in Philadelphia. Usually whatever Jesus points out about himself in these letters relates to a specific situation that was going on in the church that he was writing to. So let's look at the destination of the letter. It was written to uh, the church of Philadelphia, and in verses 8 through 10, we'll do 8 through 9 actually, we learn a little bit more about them. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Okay, so first thing we see about this church in Philadelphia is that they were faithful. It says, even though they were weak, right? He says, you don't have much strength, but that doesn't really matter. That didn't stop these Philadelphian Christians from being faithful to the Lord. And this is interesting because in almost every letter in Revelation, you usually see Jesus rebuke the church about something. He encourages them, but there'll also be a rebuke about something that they're doing wrong. We don't see that in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, we actually only see, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Keep at it, but you're doing a great job. We don't see any sort of rebuke here. And I think that's interesting. I almost wonder if the weakness of the church in Philadelphia is what allowed them to be faithful. Yes, see, I think sometimes when we have a lot of strength in and of ourselves, we can tend to rely on that, right? Maybe you have a great big church with lots of money or you have lots of influence or you have really powerful people that are a part of your church. It could become very easy to put your faith in saying, yeah, we're going to be fine whatever comes our way because we know how to take care of ourselves. But this church in Philadelphia presumably didn't have any of that. It doesn't seem like they were super influential or strong or rich or had people of places of influence. We don't know exactly what's meant by the fact they had little strength, but it seems like they didn't have a lot that would make them impressive in the eyes of man. Yet in the eyes of God, they were impressive. And he said, I've found you to be faithful even though you have little strength. Sometimes our weakness is actually what allows us to be faithful because we have nothing to cling to except the strength of the Lord. Now we see that they didn't deny his name. This implies that they were under pressure to do so, right? Like why is it that he would be say, you did a great job not denying my name unless there was some uh, impetus that was, was tempting them to deny his name. So what's probably going on here is I think that the, the Christians in Philadelphia were experiencing pressure from multiple angles to be people that denied the name of the Lord. And I would say the first angle was from the Romans who wanted them to deny Jesus by putting pressure for them to add more gods. So Philadelphia is a church in the Roman Empire, and Rome has this pantheon of gods. There are many, many gods, and the emperor is even included as being one of those gods. We've talked about that some in earlier sermons this year. 
But with that, there were a lot of people that were actually zealous about this worship. You would see temples all throughout these different cities in the Roman Empire, giant, magnificent buildings that were built for the glory of these false gods. A lot of life would, resolve, would revolve around making sacrifices and doing different temple worship types of things there. And not only, even if you weren't religiously zealous, your participation in this Roman religion was still important because it also was a sign of your patriotism especially since the Roman emperor was one of these gods. So even if you didn't care that much about the religion, you could be looked down on as a person that didn't care about Rome and that wasn't actually a patriot of the nation because you refused to worship the emperor. So there's a, a high likelihood that the Philadelphian Christians would have been experiencing some pressure to say, oh yeah, you need to add on all these other gods, add in the emperor, add in Jupiter, add in uh, all of these other different ones, Asclepius, that, those kinds of people. But then they also would have been feeling pressure from the Jews for the exact opposite reason. You see, from the Jews, they would have been experiencing pressure to subtract Jesus as God, saying, you guys have too many gods. The Romans saying you don't have enough, and the Jews would say you have too many. Now, as Christians, we believe we have one God, but our God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I get it. It's a difficult doctrine for people to understand. And so for some people, they look at this and say, it's multiple gods. So the Jews could look at the Christians and say, you can't worship this guy as a god. God said that he is, there's one God, and you guys are adding one by, by saying that Jesus is God. And so they're going to say, no, you, you need to get rid of that. As a matter of fact, as you keep worshiping this Jesus figure, we don't want anything to do with you. Now, this is important for us to remember. Christianity has very strong roots in Judaism. And I think this is something that we usually forget as 21st century Americans. Most of us sitting in this room are probably not ethnically Jewish. And we're so far removed from the time of Jesus that we forget just how Jewish the early church was. Think about this. Jesus was a Jewish man. All of his apostles were Jewish men. The Bible that early Christians used was your Old Testament. That's the only Bible that they had. The New Testament was in the process of being written during the time of the earliest church. We, we, the, the, there were places of worship. They participated in these things called synagogues, which are essentially Jewish churches, where people would come together and they would study the scriptures and encourage each other to walk faithfully in the worship of Yahweh, the one true God that we believe in. And so there, it was very, very Jewish. As a matter of fact, Christians didn't see themselves as some new religion that started with Jesus. This is really important for us to get because I don't think we understand this perspective a lot of the time. Christianity, you should not view it this way either. It's not some new religion that came onto the scene around 30 AD at the resurrection of Christ. The way that early Christians would have viewed their religion was that it was simply a continuation of worship of the one true God. That, that what we call Christianity is actually a continuation of Judaism. All right, I have some road signs up here to help explain this. So, okay, the text got messed up, but the one on the left is the Christian view, and the one on the right is the Jewish view. So, you see here on the left, you have this road sign where if you want to stay on that road, as you, t you have to turn to the left, right? If you, if you start going, if you just keep going straight, you're actually going to end up on a different road. 
And so the Christians would view their religion as saying that the prophets, everything that we've read about the fact that there's this Messiah that's coming, that one day God's going to make a new covenant with us, that he's going to forgive us our sins, he's going to place his Holy Spirit, all this stuff is prophesied in the Old Testament. They preach the gospel from the Old Testament. So they're saying, hey, there's a road sign that's telling us something big is about to happen and we're going to have to make a turn. And if you miss that turn, you're actually going to think that you're still on the same road, but you have actually diverted into something else. It was not that road. That's the, actually the Christian view of worship. And so we would say, I would say as a Christian, that I actually have the same faith as Abraham, that I have the same faith as King David, that I have the same faith as Elijah, any of these Old Testament people. I simply live in a time where, where we understand more, where a lot that had been prophesied in the Old Testament has taken place. And we call this religion Christianity, but it's really the same religion. The, the Jews would have a view of more of what's going on on the right, they would say, we're the ones that are just continuing on the, the path that we've always gone. There was something big that happened. There was kind of this, this intersection. Something splintered off from us, but that's an entirely different road. And so they would say for the Christians, they're saying, no, we reject Jesus as the Messiah. We think that we don't agree with your interpretation of the scriptures. We don't think that the time of the new covenant has come, and therefore we're going to continue in the way that we've always gone. Now, th this is significant for us, right? Because this helps us understand when a Jewish person became a follower of Jesus in the first century, they weren't thinking, I need to leave my synagogue and go join a church. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, I'm going to continue participating in my synagogue where we read God's holy scriptures. And I'm going to, to help my other people at the synagogue to realize that the fulfillment of these scriptures has come in Jesus the Messiah. They don't see it as a new religion that they're starting into. They see it as the fulfillment of the one that they've always been in. Now, with this, though, the, the Jews that don't see things the same way are going to say, no, you guys have gone way off track. You're starting some other different type of religion. And because of that, they would start to kick some of these Christians out of the synagogues. And then especially as the Christians start to welcome Gentiles into the people of God, we get this concept that we now understand as the church. Okay? Now, the church is Jesus' idea, but it's just, a, it's just a collection of believers that are together. It could have happened in the synagogue. It could have happened in what we understand as our churches now. Now, the door to the synagogues was, in almost all likelihood, was shut on these Philadelphian Christians. And that's why I think Jesus was drawing attention to himself as the gatekeeper at the beginning, right? Why is he talking so much about this idea that he opens and shuts doors? Well, in all likelihood, because this thing that the... Uh, Jewish Christians had cared so much about had shut the door on them. Why, do I, why am I so confident this is happening? Because this was happening even in the time of Jesus. You look at John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that was born blind. He was an adult man, probably about in his 40s. The man's born blind. Jesus does this incredible miracle on him, heals him of his blindness, and the Pharisees don't want to believe that this guy they don't like, Jesus, has done this miracle. And so they, they are saying it's a hoax. They're trying to get some way to confirm, was this guy actually born blind? So they go and they find his parents, and they bring his parents, and they ask, hey, is this your son? Was he born blind? And this is what we see in John chapter 9. His parents are talking. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You see, there's already a fear here. If you're in some places, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be put out from the synagogue. Now, I want you to, to realize how tough this would be, okay? Because once again, we have this disconnect where we don't realize how difficult that would be. This is your community of people that you love. Like, you have been shaped in many ways by these people. You've studied the scriptures together with these people. There's a cultural connection. There's an educational connection. So much of your life has been formed by being a part of this community. For those of you that have been really involved in our H2O community or, or uh, have really been involved meaningfully in a church, it would almost be like being kicked out of that church. And, and all these people that you love and you've learned with and you've grown, that you've grown with, that they've helped shape your character, they say, we're done with you, get out, the door is shut to you, we don't want you back here. That's the predicament that these people are in. And that's the pain that they would be feeling. It's not like they're off to just go, go join First Baptist Church. That doesn't exist there. The, the synagogue was the place where they were reading God's scriptures with others that wanted to follow him. Now, we see here... That the synagogue, though, in Philadelphia is called the synagogue of Satan. Now, why is this? The, the reason is because they were advancing Satan's agenda and not their own. Now, it's not that they were sitting around and they weren't reading the Old Testament. Instead, they were reading the Satanic Bible, okay? The Satanic Bible didn't even exist at that time. They were reading the scriptures. They were reading God's word. But the reason that they were a synagogue of Satan was because they didn't actually know God. Although they read his word, they didn't recognize him, and they weren't following him. So even though they wanted to be people that were pleasing him, they were actually opposing him. And this is what Jesus also warned about. Go back to the Gospels. John chapter 16. Jesus was preparing his disciples knowing that shortly he was going to be betrayed and crucified. He knew trouble was coming for them. And listen to what he said. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. You see, synagogue of Satan, it's opposing the Lord's will. It's not that they, that they think they're doing a bad thing. They actually think they're doing a service to God. But in reality, they're opposing him. The apostle Paul was one of these people. Before he converted to Christianity, he was a zealous Jewish Pharisee knew the law really well, was excited about persecuting Christians and trying to stamp out this thing that he thought was a threat to worship of the one true God. And so he would go around persecuting them. He was in Jerusalem. He was so zealous he wanted to go to another city and persecute Christians. And so I'm going to just read a little bit of his story here from Acts chapter 9. Uh, he's called Saul in this passage, but we generally refer to him as Paul. He says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found, there, uh, found any there who belonged to the way, that's Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, Saul, Paul talks about how he was zealous beyond all of his contemporaries. He thought he was out doing God's good work, but in reality, Jesus knocks him down, blinds him, and says, you are persecuting me. 
And it wasn't until he was able to answer that all-important question, who are you, Lord, that everything about his life changed. You see, he had zeal without knowledge, and he actually writes about that in one of his letters. But when he encountered Jesus, he gained knowledge, and his zeal was able to be directed in the right way. Now, there's a statement here about this being a synagogue of Satan, which I think we understand now why it's a synagogue of Satan, because it's opposing what the Lord is trying to do. But we also see that there's a statement that these people are Jews. They claim to be Jews, but they're not, that they're liars. What are we getting at here? Well, there's a couple ways that we can look at what it means to be a Jew. In one sense, you can look at it as it's your ethnicity. You can trace your genetic lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and ultimately, if you want to get really specific, to his son Judah. Uh, But most would see a little bit broader than that. But anyway, that, that would be the ethnic way of looking at this. However, from the, from the religious way of looking at it, you could look at it as uh, one that is a true worshiper of the Lord, one that actually has faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, this is what John the Baptist, who, by the way, preceded Jesus in his ministry, John the Baptist was there to prepare the way for Jesus to come. We see him preaching, and, and he's, he's a Jewish man, by the way, John the Baptist, Jewish man preaching to Jewish people, telling them to repent of their sin. This is what he says to crowds that were coming out to him. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire." John is, is trying to preach to these people that, that have put all of their faith in saying, God, we're, we're on God's side, we're on his team, he's happy with us because of our blood. And, and John says, God doesn't care about that. He can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. What God is looking for is people that are faithful to him. And those that are faithful to him will have fruit that shows that in their lives. That's why he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is something that starts first in your heart and manifests itself in your actions. And John's saying, man, the axe is at the root of the tree. It doesn't matter that you guys are, are in the lineage of Abraham. What matters is if you have faith. And, and Paul would echo this same sentiment in his letter to the Romans. The Apostle Paul writes this beautiful letter to Rome, the church in Rome. And it's this, this church that has a mixture of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And he's trying to help them see that uh, to, to be a child of Abraham doesn't mean that you can trace your lineage back to him, but it means that you, you are in his lineage according to faith. Listen to what he says here in Romans four sixteen to 17. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, that would be ethnic Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Tell them, see, guys, Abraham is your father means that you follow in his faith. Now, when he says he's the father of us all, remember, he's writing to church. He's writing to Christians. He's not saying Abraham is literally the father of every single person on the planet. But what he's writing to is this church. If you are a Jewish believer in Christ or if you are a Gentile believer, that just means non-Jewish believer in Christ, you are one as, as the children of Abraham because you follow in his faith. 
And so this is that idea of, of what it would really mean to be a Jew there. And, and when in Revelation, when Jesus is talking about, they say they're Jews, but they're not. I don't think he's saying that they're pretending to be an ethnicity that they're not. In all likelihood, these were ethnic Jews. They were likely people that read the law of Moses. They were likely people that knew it pretty well. They were likely people that, that cared about trying to follow it. All those kinds of things. The problem was that they didn't actually know the one true God. And while they thought that they were doing his work, they didn't actually have faith in the God of Abraham. And that's why he says they think that they're Jews, but they're not. They're actually liars. And so the door of the synagogue was shut. The door of the synagogue of Satan was shut on these Christians in Philadelphia. But a new one was opened. And Jesus said, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And so he's trying to encourage these Philadelphian believers that even though there may be doors of the world that are shut to you for following me, the ones that I can open are much better. And so I'd say it's always worth it to stand with Jesus because the doors that he opens are better than the ones that other people can shut. Now, it's easy for me to stand up here and, and preach this to you. I believe it with all of my heart. And th there may be certain doors that have been shut in my life, but... but for following Jesus, but never nothing, something that was extremely significant and painful in the way that what these Philadelphian Christians were going through, or the way that many of our brothers and sisters around the world have gone through for choosing to follow Jesus. People that have left other faiths, that have been disowned by their families. Uh, even people that, that grow up in very secular environments sometimes are disowned by their families or made fun of by their families for this. You might lose friend groups, any of these kinds of things, but I thought it would be valuable for you to hear from somebody who can actually share their story firsthand with you about what it's like to have a door shut for following Jesus and the way that he opens other ones. So I'm going to play a video for you. It's, it's pretty long. It's about nine minutes, uh, but it's definitely worth watching. It's actually from a, a pastor whose name is Afshin uh, Ziafat, okay? He's Iranian, and uh, I'll just let you tell, I'll let him tell you the rest of his story. Hi, my name is Afshin Ziafat. I'm the pastor of Providence Church in Frisco, Texas. And I would love to share with you how I came to know the call of Jesus Christ to follow him. Uh, in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And right there you see the call of Christ isn't just believe the right things about me, but to follow me. And to follow him entails a cost. He says you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. A lot of people don't want to talk about that part. They want to talk about the life part, the, 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 the uh, blessing part, but they don't want to talk about that the call first is to take up your cross, to lay your life down. Now don't misunderstand me. The gift of salvation that Christ offers is a free gift, not to be earned. But it's not just easy believism in a, in a person named Jesus and what he's done, but it's a commitment of your life to count the cost, and to follow him. In Luke chapter 14, Scripture says that a great mass of people were following behind Jesus. And he turns to them and he says, If anyone wants to come my way, he must hate his father, mother, wife, and children, and even his own life to be my disciple. He must forsake all that he has in order to be my disciple. He says, Any man who wants to build a tower must first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Unless he begin to, to start to build it and he can't finish and I'll mock him. And so what Jesus is saying there is there's a cost to be counted. 
That's strong language to hate your father, mother. Does God hate the family and want to tear up the family? Well, of course not. God loves the family, created the family. But what that means is even that precious relationship of a family should not come between us and following Christ. And even that would be something we would look at and even, even hate compared to our love and our commitment to following Jesus no matter the cost. So one might say, well, where's the good news in that? I got to lose my life. Where's the good news? Well, the good news is the very next verse in Matthew 16, right after Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And in verse 25, he says, for if anyone wants to save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's the hope of the gospel. If you try to hold on to your life, you're actually losing it. But if you would take up your cross and lay your life down, then you're going to find life. And I would add that it may not be the life you have for yourself, but it's the life you want. It's going to be a life used for the glory of God. And it's going to be a life used for others knowing about Jesus. That's what I didn't know when I first became a Christian. So I was born in Houston. When I was two years old, my family moved to Iran, where my parents are from. When I was six years old, the Islamic Revolution of the late 70s hit that country. We moved back to Houston. Uh, I didn't speak English. I spoke Farsi. And so an English tutor that was teaching me the English language every day by reading me books gave me a small New Testament in the second grade. I read that New Testament 10 years later, and that's how I came to faith in Christ. Because of my newfound faith in Christ, I decided to hide my faith from my family. I made my commitment to Christ public at, a, at an evangelistic crusade, and, and at driving home from this event is when it hit me. What am I going to tell my father? What am I going to tell my family? You see, my father had always been the most important person in my life, the guy I've always looked up to. And so I'm ashamed to tell you this, but I decide to hide my faith from him. I, I would sneak out to go to church. I would intercept mail from the church I was attending. I'd hide my Bible. Well, finally one day my dad found out. He'd seen my Bible. He'd seen other evidences in my life. And he sits me down and he said, son, what's going on? I said, dad, what do you mean? He said, there's something different about you. And I said, well, dad... I'm a Christian. And he said, excuse me? I said, I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not, young man. You're a Muslim, and you'll always be a Muslim. And I said, Dad, the Bible says if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then I'm a Christian, and I do. And my dad said, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. And that's when it first nailed me. Everything in me wanted to say, forget it, I'll be a Muslim, because I didn't want to lose my dad. And I share that so you know I'm not boasting today. Because uh, even I was surprised when I opened my mouth and I said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. And if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. So my father disowned me on the spot. I went upstairs to my room, and this is the defining moment of my life. I said, God, how could you do this to me? I said, Jesus, if you're real, how could you take my dad away from me? And the Lord led me to a passage of scripture in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him. Jesus goes on to say, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father. And I'm reading this right after my dad disowned me. And I'm reading this going, whoa, this just happened for me. And he goes on and says, I've come to turn a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies with the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then again, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's when I first understood what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
And I'm passionate for people to know, look, there's a cost to following Jesus. What is it costing you to follow him? That might be that the thing they're holding on to is the thing that's keeping them from a life lived for his glory. For me, it was my dad. For, for, for you, for others, it may be something else. I think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus lists off some commands. And we're very good many times in a Christian culture at just kind of keeping the commands on the outside. This guy goes, oh, I've kept the commands. And Jesus says, all right, then go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you follow me. You see, Jesus knew who this man's God really was. And so the Bible says that this man walked away from Jesus sorrowful for he had great possessions. What a shame. He possessed great things he wasn't willing to lose and he missed out possessing the greatest thing in life. And so what is the thing that we are holding on to? And our people have to learn when you lose your life, you find it. Well, for me, I had to lose my family to follow Christ. But God gave me a roommate in college that was also a former Muslim who also was disowned by his father. God, from college, took me to seminary, gave me a a man who paid for my entire seminary degree, a businessman in Dallas, gave me a position at a a church to be an intern and then to be a college pastor, and then gave me a 15-year speaking ministry where I've traveled all over the country, preached the gospel, seen Muslims come to faith in Christ. Uh, My story's been put in magazines that have gone all over the world. Now, why? Because I'm an amazing uh, minister, speaker, pastor, because I have a great resume? No, because God had a plan for my life. And I, and I believe when we lose our life is when we find the life that God wants us to have. One final thing, what's so amazing is that today, my relationship with my dad is restored. He's not a Christian. We're still praying for that. But on top of that, a ministry called Elam, which is in England, And this ministry reaches into Iran with the gospel. They found out about me. They've come and partnered with me. And now I go to the Middle East. I can't get into Iran, but I go to a neighboring country where men and women who've come to faith in Christ are coming there to be trained. And I get to train them. And they go back into Iran. I'm not the only one. There's several of us that train them. But they go back to Iran and plant underground churches today. What's amazing is this, that today I could be a doctor and have my dad proud of me if I held on to my life. But by the grace of God, I was able to de- deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus, to lay my life down. And now today, I get to be part of a ministry impacting the nation that my family came out of. And so, when we lose our life, I believe our life will be leveraged and used for the glory of God and for others to know Jesus. And so, that's why for us to be on mission, to be doing evangelism, we must first count the cost and follow Christ. It's a powerful story. Because of his faith in Christ, the door to his father's heart, his earthly father's heart was shut, but the door to his heavenly father's kingdom was opened. And just like the Philadelphian Christians, he experienced loss. You never know what kind of doors God is going to open, though, as your faithful source. Some might be shut in your face. For Afshin, God did awesome stuff here in this world. Like, he's got something even better waiting, but God has opened up this incredible ministry that he has. For others, that's not been their case. For some of them, they were, for other people, sometimes it just ends quickly in martyrdom. 
Whatever your fate may be, I don't know, but I know that the call is the same for all of us, like he was saying, that, that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. And so in closing here, I told you I was going to talk about the destination and sender of the recipients. I'm just going to speak very briefly on these last few verses of the letter. Verses 10 through 13 say, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the destination for these Christians, as this letter was sent to them, it was telling them of a place that they were going to go. And the place that they were going to go was a new city, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And the one that sends them there is the same one that sent them the letter the one that holds the, key, holds the key of David, the one that opens doors that nobody else can shut. He told them, I'm coming soon. Jesus was coming soon. And, and when we say that soon, I think it means his return is imminent. We don't know the day or the hour. Nobody knows that but the Father. But it could happen at any moment. Now, there's a reward that Jesus talks about here, that not only are these people going to get to come to this city, but he talks about three things, just that they're going to be kept from the hour of trial in verse 10. There's some dispute about what that means. Some people have this idea that Christians are going to be raptured away before the end of the world and they're going to escape all the difficulty and persecution. I would disagree with that. I think Christians are going to be around for quite a bit of the tribulation, quite a bit of the testing and terrible things that come at the end. But what I think that Jesus is saying here and this idea that they're going to be kept from the hour of trial, there's, there's two potential things. One potential option is that they're going to be kept safe through it. So even though they're going to be there in the midst of it, he'll preserve their witness. Um, but I think what's more likely is that there is at some point we are going to be delivered. And that's going to be when the final wrath of God is poured out. And so even though Christians are going to have to go through a lot of difficulty, a lot of trial, a lot of testing, they've already been through this. God certainly doesn't promise that he's not going to let trial or testing come into our lives. But what he does promise is that we're saved from his wrath. And so this hour of testing that will come upon the whole earth, all those who dwell on the earth, I think this is speaking of the final judgment of God that will come there. And that they're going to be kept from that. And anyone who puts their faith in Christ is going to be kept from the wrath of God because God's wrath was already poured out on Jesus on the cross. Now it also says that they're going to be made a pillar in the temple of God. Philadelphia was a city that was very earthquake prone. And sometimes if a really bad earthquake would come through, one of the only buildings that would still be able to stand were these temples that have these giant, powerful pillars holding them up. And I think there's this really beautiful imagery that he says, I'm going to make you a, a pillar in the temple of my God. You see, uh, the, the same way that those pillars are, are sturdy and stable through all the earthquakes and everything else that may have come upon your city, I'm going to firmly establish you in the temple of my God and you will never leave it. You're not going to be shut out anymore. You may have been kicked out of the synagogue. You may have other doors that are shut in your life, but I'm going to firmly root you and establish you in the city of my God and nobody is going to take you out of it. 
And finally, there's this idea that they'll have the name of God and of his city written on them. And I think this is a really cool image. You know, we, we don't usually actually write names on people very often. Um, but there is this idea of being identified with the name of somebody. And the closest thing that I can think to it is in a marriage when, uh, at least in our culture, most of the time a, a bride will give up her, her last name and take the name of her husband upon her. And in a sense, the husband is writing her name upon her. He may not be doing it with a Sharpie. But, it, but she's essentially being brought into his family saying, I, this, I identify with you. I am with you for the rest of my life. This is, this is such a strong bond and, and such a union that your name is being written upon me. And I think this is so cool that for us as the church, the bride of Christ, that we get to have the name of God written upon us, that he would take us into his family. And this is who we are, and that's who we're identified by. And so the question for us is, just the same way the, the Christians in Philadelphia had to choose is, which gatekeepers do we care about? Who, whose name are we going to choose? Are, are we more concerned about the doors that can be open or shut here in this world? Or are we more concerned about the one who opens doors that nobody else can shut? And also the one that shuts doors that nobody else can open. I'm here to tell you today, guys, Jesus has opened the door of heaven to you. But you have to go through him. He's the gatekeeper. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I would implore you today that if you don't know Jesus, that today you would, that you would start a relationship with him, that you would begin to follow him. Now count the cost, just like Afshin was talking about, count the cost. But if, if you're ready to do that, there's gonna be people in the back that would love to pray with you about what it looks like to start a relationship with Jesus and to follow him. If you already know Jesus and you're already in that relationship, then awesome. I pray that you would be encouraged and emboldened by the stories of these Philadelphian Christians that realized that their standing with God was far more important than anything else that this world had to offer. I love you guys. Let's pray. Um, <clears throat> God, we thank you that you opened doors to us. Um, God, that, that you open doors that nobody else can shut, Lord, no matter what this world might want to do to us, no matter what doors may be shut, whether that's uh, friends that don't want to be uh, friends with us anymore, or whether that's uh, job opportunities that we might miss out on, whether that's family members that might disown us, whether that's a, a reputation that we might lose, whether that's uh, certain sins that, that we, we looked to for gratification that we, that we no longer uh, walk in. God, whatever, there are so many doors that, that are shut in this world when we choose to follow you, God, but we thank you that you open a door that nobody else can open. God, we thank you that the door to heaven has been swung wide by the blood of Christ. God, we thank you for that, and we pray for everyone in this room that they would enter through that door, that they would enter through the door that is Jesus. God, that, that we would come to you through the only one that has the keys. God, we thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world that uh, are experiencing things exactly like what Afshin talked about in the video. People right now, that, that the reality of doors being shut is, is very present and very painful in their lives. God, we pray for them. We lift them up. We ask that you would encourage them and strengthen them. And God, for us, maybe we don't have stories that are as dramatic as Afshin or the, the Christians that are in Philadelphia. 
But God, we know that, that there are still things that, that we need to turn away from here in this world. And that, that there may be sacrifices coming down the road where we're going to have to be okay with the door being shut to us. Lord, give us the power and the courage to choose you. We thank you that you've written your name upon your people. We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.